Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we use data to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So our data point this week is 86 billion, as in $86 billion dollars which is the total amount of money that the stocks of the Indian conglomerate Adani Group have lost in the past week. Accusations of stock manipulation, accounting fraud against the Adani Group conglomerate by short seller Hindenburg Research now leading to a lot of questions about the credibility of India's market. Looking elsewhere in the markets today, major short seller Hindenburg Research putting out a market-moving call on Adani Group. It's the family-owned business. The crisis of confidence continues. We have seen bonds a little bit more resilient, but it seems not any longer. The sell-off was sparked by research into the group by Hindenburg Research, a group that raised questions about the transparency of Adani's debt levels and its use of tax havens. Adani, for its part, has denied the allegations, saying Hindenburg's narrative has no basis and that it has always made the necessary regulatory disclosures with Indian authorities. The company, in any case, what's not denied is that it has made the company's namesake, Gautam Adani, the world's third richest person and Asia's richest overall, at least until this stock implosion, which has pushed him out of the top 10 in global rankings and into the number two slot in Asia. But still, that makes him important on his own terms as a a global economic actor and as a window into the economy of India. He has risen in tandem with Prime Minister Narendra Modi, not just in parallel, but as mutual allies with the Prime Minister. So yeah, we thought we would look at just what exactly Adani says about the Indian economy and how the Indian system of politics really works. So Adam, biographically... Adani has a pretty impressive rags-to-riches story. It struck me almost as a kind of Indian variant on the classic Horatio Alger tale from the United States. So I thought I'd ask you, what exactly were the key turning points on his path to great wealth? Yeah, it's a fascinating story. So he's born in 62, um, one of seven children, sort of as India's demographic boom is cresting. And... um, not in a poor family by any means, but to a very a small businessman, a, a small uh, trading family. He he's initially embarking on a you know undistinguished career in school and then heading to a commercial college, but then drops out and in seventy eight enters the diamond trade, which is large in the province of Gujarat. Um, and um, but then sets himself up as a sort of export import trader. 
Uh, and from the 90s onwards embarks on the infrastructure projects, um, management of ports, the construction of railway systems, for which he will become famous, indeed legendary, over the last couple of decades since the early 2000s. So it's the story not really of a kind of, you know, a business genius who has some technological gee whiz idea that conquers the world. It isn't a story, for instance, of you know, the the magnificent technical excellence of Indian IT services, for instance, or the construction of a very complex network of cellular telephony or something like that. It's a more classic story of the accumulation of capital by means of trade, um, trading on margins, basically, and then a shift into infrastructure. And this is where the, I think, the key element in the Adani's story comes in, which is which is politics and the politics of connections and clientelism, and and that's really the decisive moment in his in his career, where um, you know after the after the ghastly pogroms against the Muslim population of Gujarat in two thousand and two, when Narendra Modi um, is under massive pressure, uh, Adani solidarizes himself with Modi against. Um, at the time, the prevailing mood of Indian business opinion, he in fact breaks ranks and forms his own industrial association or business association. And on that basis really forms this lasting connection to Modi that is really the distinguishing feature of his business enterprise. And I think you have to credit that for what it is. In other words, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of organizational talent, really, of building a business that can grow very rapidly and in very close association with government projects, whether they're at the provincial level. And Indian provinces are the size of European nation states, so we're not talking small scale here, that can grow in association with 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 government, but also through mobilizing financial capital and good connections with banks and the financial markets. And that's really where his genius, if you want to call it that, really stands out, is in in constantly shuffling that 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 combination of factors and that's what's enabled this utterly explosive growth i mean this was a still moderately sized business in the 90s and the early 2000s which has now become absolutely a globally scaled enterprise uh, and the foundation for huge wealth uh, for uh, Dani and his family so to dig into this relationship with modi i mean what exactly links adani and modi's bjp party on an ideological level? I mean, do they share a vision for what kind of country India should be? Or is this relationship an expression of a kind of material division of labor? Just Adani is the economic arm of the Indian state under the BJP in service of, yeah, just kind of objective development. I think the key phrase, and I was very impressed by this when I was in India um, in the fall, had the chance to meet with you know economists then the key phrase i think is nation building um both both words in that in that hyphenated term so national projects aiming for truly comprehensive scale which when you're dealing with a subcontinental state like india with the population that india has is a gigantic undertaking right building anything at national scale is you know, it's it's three United States or four United States. It's a gigantic uh, uh, mobilization that's required to act at that scale. So to establish itself the way it has, uh, the Adani Group, as the key power, electricity, coal producer in the private sector, 
absolutely key player in port infrastructure at the national scale, an absolutely key player in um, in um, airports, um, air mobility being key in a country the size of India, um, moving into a new position in cement. Like these are, this is creating a national economy out of the relatively decentralized provincial structures, which until a remarkably recent date dominated the Indian economy that's that's in and of itself a huge a huge project and is one that absolutely unites um the interests of key business groups with modi for whom building infrastructure is a key is a key is a key vision and and it's the second element then delivery is the absolutely key thing because if there's one problem the indian state machine has it is the capacity to deliver they have a chronic problem and there's no shortage of brilliant minds that can conceive of wonderful plans but actually implementing policy down to the village level and across the entire of this vast country that's a huge challenge and i think it's the the combination of those two elements that really has forged the you know almost mythic relationship between Modi on the one hand and these two big business groups, Ambani on the one hand and Adani on the other, both from Gujarat. And I think that's another element really that you could say was also a kind of ideological narrative, which is this, this the talk of of the Gujarat model. Um, and it's, you know, to put it crudely, you might say it was a sort of Indian Thatcherism or an Indian neoliberalism. It was a, it was a break as in the case of Thatcher, driven from within the government machine, in this case within the province of Gujarat, against the rather top-down state-directed model inherited from the Neruvian period of you know, early independence of the 1940s and 1950s, where India toyed with socialist, social democratic um, planning models. And this is replaced in the 90s and the 2000s by this Gujarat model, which is a kind of open embrace of a productive powerhouse relationship between big business interests and government. So Adani has most recently been in the news, as I mentioned, for this precipitous drop in his company stock prices as a result of this report by the Hindenburg Research Group. I was wondering if you could summarize the allegations against Adani here, but then more generally... I'm curious what this episode reveals about the role played by short sellers like the Hindenburg Research Group in the global economy. It, you know, it struck me that this research report was having a kind of de facto regulatory function here. I mean, are short sellers the kind of de facto international regulators of, of capitalism? I mean, internal, I guess, even to the capitalist system. Yeah, so the the allegations, which we can't stress strongly enough, the Adani Group vigorously disputes, and for the what I think it was two hundred and ninety pages that the Hindenburg researchers published, the Adani Group came back forty eight hours later with four hundred and forty of their own. So, but the allegation is that uh, through a network of essentially family linked holding companies held to a considerable extent outside India. Um, the Adani Group dramatically inflated the value of its stock. Um, so, round about seventy-five percent of Adani shares are held by, according to Hindenburg Group, other businesses, which are, in a sense, simply postbox entities 
situated in places like um, Mauritius, for instance, offshore, um, which drive up the stock value of the Adani Group. And the significance of that is not only that it brings paper um, gains for the holdings of the key members of the family, but much more importantly, what it enables them to do is to leverage those high stock values to get bank loans and to get credit, which then turns into real purchasing power with which you can then launch large investment projects, buy out rivals, actually reshape India's political economy. And this is a form of manipulation, if that is indeed what it is, that creates a distorted vision of the a distorted vision of the underlying value of the business. And if you look like for like, if you compare the sort of infrastructure businesses that the Adani companies are involved in with and the valuations that the Adani group has, they are hugely greater than what you would expect from other business, you know, firms more generally in those sectors across the Indian financial market. Now, the Hindenburg group in pursuing this case is in a sense, involved in playing a game in India that it is played in in other respects. They're an interesting, very small research outfit that specialize in doing, I'm not sure I would call them regulators. It's a little bit more like private investigator kind of work. They they seize on a cause. They, they decide that a company is massively overvalued. They do their homework. They then take short positions and through the force of their research attempt, as it were, then to drive the value of the, the firm down, which generates large profits on their, on their short positions. And this is a, a model that they pursued across, largely it has to be said, American markets. So there's not much, this is their first, their first really big international coup that, they, that they've launched. And it's interesting what the sophisticated Indian response is, is to say, you know, you know, there's a you know, in a sense, what are you telling us that we don't know already? Um, hmm. The sophisticated Indian response, I think, is that um, there's really an element of culture clash here. I mean, there, there aren't many players in the Indian financial markets who imagine that the value of the Adani Group is determined in a conventionally free and fair way because people aren't naive about the way in which India's political economy operates. Anyway, any more, for instance, than people who have put huge amounts of money into the big platform businesses in the United States were naive about their prospects, right? The valuation of the platform businesses in the United States was pretty hard to justify unless you assumed that down the pike, they would end up with monopoly positions that would allow them to reap huge profits. And the sophisticated rationale for what's going on in India is that Indian financial investors know that it is indeed the impunity, if you like, the ability of the Adani group to, if necessary, you know, produce rather high valuations of its assets to sustain large amounts of credit that is part of their business plan. And with the backing that they enjoy in political circles, they are not just too big to fail, but essentially essentially identified with the Modiite project. So long as that is hegemonic in Indian politics, these businesses cannot fail. So there is, in fact, very little risk that you won't get paid back. And there is some prospect, and in fact, no prospect any other way, of this major infrastructure in India actually getting built, because they are the last resort, if you like, of the Indian state machine. And to that extent, no harm, no foul, 
right? This is, in a sense, a kind of collective bubble of enthusiasm for the Modi big business linkage in the same way as there's been a collective bubble of enthusiasm for US high-tech stocks. And those are the kind of valuations that these businesses command. And if that works out, then everyone gets rich and you go to the moon, right? That's the kind of logic. If it doesn't, well... Well, then, you know, it was at least a reasonable gamble. Who is harmed by this is to that extent not so much the investors, who, unless you come along and burst the bubble and say the emperor has no clothes, suffer no loss. On the contrary, ride the ride the rocket ship to the moon, right? What actually is happening is that the as India's economy is becoming progressively more and more distorted by this self-sustaining linkage between high market valuations, large credit and deep political connections constituting a too big to fail kind of juggernaut that can't be stopped. And the consequence of that is not, you know, in a sort of investor protection case, if you're on this train, you're probably going to be fine. The real issue is what it does to the Indian economy and what it does by implication also to Indian society. We'll take a break here, but we'll be right back to continue talking about the economy of India. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times, no, I've been more than a few times, uh, pretty regularly I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me, and I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, we're back. So I did want to ask more specifically about what Adani's life and role in the Indian economy reveals about the role of the super wealthy in countries at India's stage of development. 
you know, obviously he is uh, one of the richest men in the world in a country that is is not yet on a par with the other richest countries in the world. And so does Adani act as an engine of domestic development through reinvestments in the country or through philanthropy? Or is it instead that in our current era of liberalized capital markets, can he just kind of take his money out of the country? Is that is he, in a way, insulating himself from the Indian economy? There is a network of contacts that the family and the business group has on the outside, and there are there is obviously a substantial network of offshore holding companies. But what's really interesting is that this is not, I think, as far as we're able to assess anyway, a Russian-style model. I mean, this is an immensely wealthy family. They will have property in many parts of the world. But this is not a model like the Russian oligarch one, where you pump oil and gas in Russia, you sell it for dollars, and then you stash those dollars in a Swiss bank account. Right? That That is the kind of classic model of truly offshore oligarchic finance draining resource from a country. As far as we're able to set, assess, and certainly the allegations by the Hindenburg researchers are is that if anything, as it were, the Adani group is using offshore money to sustain and double down on their positions in India. In other words, it's by way Mm. of notionally independent but actually tied in holdings, which appear as though they're from the outside but are in fact part of the Indian group, that the valuations have been inflated. The purpose of that, however, is to raise more credit so as to be able to do more investment in India. So, the, 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 it, this is not an instance, I think, of a group that is operating primarily in an extractive, extractive mode. Um, the Adanis are also recently, at least, have become very heavily involved in philanthropy. Um, for the occasion of his uh, Gautam's uh, 60th birthday, they launched one of the largest philanthropic initiatives that India has seen since the glory days of the Tata family in the ranks of global corporate philanthropy. India actually has the number one position, the Tatar Family Foundation that was founded in uh, 1898, years before the Rockefeller or the Carnegie Foundations, has over time and adjusted for inflation probably received the largest single donation of any corporate philanthropy in the world, over $100 billion. Um, The Adanis are not in that league yet, but in 2022, they pledged $7.7 billion. Um, so very considerable amounts of money in the kind of league of the, you know, the 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 Gateses at that stage. But much bigger questions have, of course, to be asked about the role of these kind of powerful business elites in, in India's development. And what's really striking about the Adani family is that they're new on the scene, right? So broadly speaking, there are kind of three waves of Indian super elite wealth that have dominated the country's history over the 20th and the 21st century. Um, The kind of founding, the Tatars that go back to the British imperial period, then a group of families that grew rapidly in the 50s and 60s. I think the Mittals, for instance, in Steel belong in that kind of group. And then the Adanis and Ambanis um, are figures really of of the recent past. And there is a reshuffling going on between those groups in which business, on the one hand, so prominence in capital markets, connections to politics, influence in the media. One of the really dramatic developments of the last couple of years is the Adanis, like the Ambanis, are bought into the television networks in India, which are very crucial for a society with low levels of literacy and you know uh, a very big uh, television system. And then uh, finally, this cultural element, which is achieved through philanthropic relevance. And I think in all four of those dimensions, business, politics, media, 
and the influence of philanthropy, we see a kind of reshuffling of the pack uh, with the Adanis emerging as absolutely key players. It's interesting that you highlight this kind of loyalty that Adani has in reinvesting in India. I mean, is it not wrong to say that that's different than the kind of approach that even America's capitalists and the super wealthy take? I mean, it seems like there's not this emphasis on reinvesting in the country that is sort of providing the wealth or the basis for that wealth. And as I was trying to say, it seems like there would be options. Like Adani doesn't need to do this. He could move his money elsewhere. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there was talk that they were going to set up a family office to to manage their wealth, either in the Emirates and, or New York. And they they, they hmm. actually came out quite strongly to, de- to deny that this was ever a plan. I think it's in the logic. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, you know, the, the patriotic... Um, uh, you know, commitment of these people. I mean, I think it's kind of the, you know the the ethics of this are sort of by by the by, really, to be honest. But what's really striking is I think that their model of accumulation is essentially nas- is nation centered, and and heaven knows there are plenty of opportunities in India. Right, it's an open frontier in many ways for absolutely large scale development. But their model relies so heavily on their connections to national politics that there's a limit to which it will transport to other places. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that loyalty has a kind of moral basis, but it's interesting that loyalty can have a kind of economic basis, you know, yeah. in that way. I think, I mean, this goes back to your question about ideology. I think they are fervently committed to the project of Indian nation building. It's a very exciting, you know, in the same way as I think we take this seriously with regard to Chinese actors, like, you know, the boss of Huawei or whatever. Like, these are patriots. They really are profoundly patriotic people who want to deploy their business and their technology for the purpose of... Yes, being part of this historic shift. And I do think it's, I mean, you'd have to correct me or you'd have to tell me, but the contrast with the kind of Rockefellers and Carnegie's are, I think, interesting Mm. because unless I'm wrong, I mean, they didn't have the option of sort of easily moving their money elsewhere. I mean, this sort of loyalty was a kind of, you know, uh, wasn't as much of a choice in the 19th century as far as I would think. But you tell me in terms of those kinds of earlier American analogs to these oligarchs. No, that's really interesting. I, um, I mean, they, they certainly, it was a freer time in terms of the capital mobility overall. It, would, it was easier and the connections to London were, of course, incredibly deep if you think about J.P. Morgan's connection. So I'm not sure hmm. the structural hmm. difference. I think it's, it's, it's genuinely the case that the Adanis in particular are products of the new India, right? These are not, this is not an oligarchic, aristocratic industrial family with roots older than the Indian nation state. These mm. are people who are products of not even the early phase of Indian independence, but the the second phase, right? The the 80s and 90s phase where the BJP comes to the fore. Um, and so they are they don't necessarily have the horizons of the global, um, you know, entrepreneurial families. Mm. I mean, Adani famously, for instance, doesn't speak English very well, um, which is a serious handicap in elite Indian society and in dealing with the global media. I mean, I'm sure his English now is is very well tutored, but when he was coming up, he he was notable for the fact that he was reticent in public because he didn't feel he had the cultural capital to go, you know, toe to toe with the with a deeply anglicized um, Indian elite. And to that extent, again, he's very much more in the mode of a Narendra Modi, who, whose English also, when he first rose to power, was, was 
by Indian standards, remarkably patchy and heavily accented, and and um, he just avoided as far as possible communicating in English. Um, and that I think gives you some idea of of the sense in which these this generation of Indian elites are more, well, for want of a better word, indigenous than the elites of the 19th and early 20th centuries, which were more closely tied to the British Empire and before that the the Mughals and the other you know um, imperial structures which had been so powerful in in India, which didn't have that nationalist. Um, feel that the current iteration of the Indian state does. Yeah, I guess finally I just wanted to end on this general question, which is what does Adani's career and his wealth tell us about the Indian economy in general? I mean, what kind of capitalist country is this exactly when we're talking about India? Well, it's a very interesting question, and that's the one that haunts everyone. If you if you go to Delhi and you speak to you know economists, think tank, political economists, folks just trying to figure out the, the destiny of this awesome country, that that's the question that preoccupies them. And the you know the the upside story, the one that the proponents of this system, if we can call it that, favour, is that it's a South Korean style, like a Chebol type system, where you have these very very powerful. Uh, conglomerate families um, like uh, the Samsung uh, Group, for instance, or the partly state-owned uh, Korean steel company, POSCO, which attempted to do business in India and which the Modi-connected oligarchs have had dealings with. So that's, as it were, the the, the most favourable vision that these powerhouse private public-private partnerships will be the drivers of an Indian industrial development or modernization like that of South Korea, which is the you know the truly astonishing example of this coming from from Indian levels of poverty in the late sixties and early seventies to its current modernity. Of course, you know the muckraking uh, critique goes in a very different, much darker direction, and it it starts where you were just now with the kind of robber baron era. Um, it goes then to the kind of crony capitalist discourse of the 2010s, um, which is a kind of liberal critique, right, that says, you know, if only you could establish a level playing field between the big businesses, then India will be a more efficient kind of economy. Um, and imagines that as, if you like, almost a utopia of, of fair play. And on the darker end of the spectrum, the, the the fear is that you could see the development of a crony capitalism that shifts ever more towards a the more ominous sort of um, Russian development, um, where you have, you know, a quite fundamental erosion of the rule of law beyond the kind of privileges that large industrial and business groupings will fight tooth and claw for under any circumstances, right? And they can hire the best lawyers in the land. And bully their way to um, a very favoured position. The 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 real worry, I think, is that you could see a much more fundamental degeneration of competition, of of, of civil society control, and um, that is why many people regard the um, acquisitions by these big groups in the media space as being so worrying, because one of the consequences of that is that the freedom of speech is increasingly curtailed um and uh, even you know tenure in universities becomes problematic um when you're dealing with power houses as, as significant as this so that i think is the dark fantasy that lurks in the background but if you if you speak you know again setting all of these big sort of historical analogies aside 
the the ultimately the rationale and the acid test of this system, if we can call it that, will be, you know, what political scientists call output legitimacy. Can they get the job done? Are they actually going to be able to deliver on a raft of big infrastructural projects that India needs over the next decades? Notably, for instance, in the renewable energy and the sustainable energy space. In the end, these corporate stories have to translate into the infrastructure that enables that more broadly based macroeconomic growth. And how they will be judged, I think, will ultimately depend to a considerable extent on that. Okay, so India is somewhere on the spectrum between South Korea and Russia, which is a wide spectrum indeed. <laughs> it's a very wide spectrum, yeah. Um, but yes, something, something certainly to, to continue tracking. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. 
To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.